Welcome to Business with Beers. I am your host, Brian Beers. This is a podcast for business owners who want to scale their business to massively grow their income and contribution by investing in people, process, and technology. This week, we've got a great show with Josh Lindsay, who is the managing partner of American Business Brokers. He's got vast experience with mergers and acquisitions, taking one of his companies public in 2006 and has sold more than $130 million in small businesses since then. In this episode, we dive into what owners can do to make their business more valuable, the difference between a stock versus an asset sale, when is the best time, and much more. This is a great episode and Josh is a lot of fun. And before we dive in, I wanna tell you about an extraordinary offer from a company that I currently use called My Outdesk. My Outdesk offers professional virtual assistant services. They also happen to be rated the number one virtual assistant company by Tech Radar with over 700 five-star reviews. I've got friends and associates who are among the thousands of their very satisfied customers. I get a lot of listeners asking questions on how do I scale with lowering my cost. I use my outdesk and save 70% versus a traditional in-person hire. For business with beers listeners, my outdesk is offering a free double your business strategy session. Simply go to myoutdesk.com slash beers, as in my last name, to schedule a call. And on this call, you can work one-on-one with one of their business consultants to design an action strategy to hire and launch a virtual assistant into your business today. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review with your favorite part to help us reach more people. If you'd like to connect with me, go to brianbeers.com to find all of my links. Hey, welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, I appreciate it, Brian. Thanks. Awesome. Well, this wouldn't be business with beers if I didn't ask you that me and you are at a bar in Utah. What would we be drinking? Probably like a Coke Zero. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I don't drink. Uh, it's like so weird, but I just, that's I've never drinking alcohol in my life. Is that weird? Oh, no, no, that's awesome. I don't know if it's awesome, but I haven't drinking alcohol before. That's, that's not cool. Anyway, if you could, uh, you can sh- kind of share your story, maybe your journey from, I don't know, 18 years old, 20 year young, young guy and kind of your, your career and just paint the picture and, and kind of bring us up to speed to give a listeners of uh, your life and your journey. Yeah, no problem. So when I was young, you said 18, so I'll start there. I was really involved in sports and kind of to touch on the whole, I don't drink alcohol or never have. So into sports, I was so worried about drinking that I would gain weight or get fat mm-hmm. that it would affect you know, my athletic career, so to speak. So I, I had an opportunity to go play college football. Um, I ended up serving a church service mission and I blew out my knee while I was on the mission. When I came back, I did rehab, et cetera. I just couldn't get the juice back. Like it wasn't as fast and stuff. Um, so I had a transition. I remember that being kind of a real eye-opening experience for me. Um, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in sports, mm. who I was and what I was good at, et cetera. And when it kind of all stopped, I had to figure something else out. So luckily, uh, a lot of what makes a successful athlete is also what makes a successful business person, in my opinion. You know, you got to work hard. Sure, talent is a component, but the work aspect mm-hmm. is the real separator, right? Um, and so once I started to learn that and just kind of apply that passion, uh, my career just kind of started to take off. So I got into sales jobs real early. You know, I liked making money. I liked being able to drive a new BMW and stuff at a very young age and go pick up girls and whatnot like that. So sales has always been kind of my thing. So I finished school as fast as possible. Um, uh, it took me like two and a half years. I graduated from a French Canadian school 
purely just to keep my mom happy. I just wanted to get that degree and be like, look, I'm done. Yep. And just wanted to get into sales. So I started out um, working in sales and, and kind of networked through there. I was making six figures like in my early 20s. Um, and kind of worked my way up the, the, the chain to where I finally got an opportunity to be a partner in a company. Um, and it was a financial services company. Uh, we did prepaid debit cards and ATMs. Back okay. when prepaid debit cards were like the thing, right? Like they okay. just come out, right? Now it's like no big deal. But um, And we ended up taking that company public. And really, I was fortunate enough just to be partnered with two older gentlemen with much more experience than I was. I was like 23, 24 at the time. But I was the sales guy, right? They'd send me out on the road. Mm -hmm. I had unlimited energy. I could go out and just sell for days. And they knew it. And they just kind of rode that horse into the ground. But I gained a lot of experience. And like I said, I, we took that company public in 2006. After that, I had to do a two-year two stint in it. Um, I had some capital to work with. And I started buying and selling companies. Okay. So I've sold six of my own personal companies. And through that process, I was getting a lot of friends and family asking me, you know, how are you putting these deals together? Or um, how are you coming up with the money, et cetera? And so that's how I've got my two companies now. I've got a private equity arm where I still actively invest in business ventures and we still sell them, et cetera. And then American Business Brokers has been established in 2011 where we do full representation. And what I could tell is that there was a need, a real need for good representation in the space when selling a business. And what I mean by that is a lot of people that I've run into that are a business broker, so to speak, used to you know, sell insurance or they sell real estate or they used to sell something else. And then all of a sudden, they just decided to sell businesses one day. Mm -hmm. And that, that's fine. But they didn't really have much uh, hands-on experience where they were like risking their own capital doing their own valuations and then having to exit out of it, so to speak, and, you know, get an ROI. And so since I have that, uh, you know, it's one of my strengths, one of my weaknesses, but I really treat all of my business deals when I'm representing clients really personal because I know what it's like to sell one of your businesses and I know what it's like to buy one. And so I'm really all about, you know, pushing the envelope to get high dollar but at the same time, making sure that that deal is a fair deal to where buyers can be successful Sellers can be happy when they exit, and um, so far so good. So it's it's kind of worked out worked out well. So how long have you had those two companies, the private equity company and the, and the brokerage? So I'd say the private equity I started in two thousand eight after I left uh, the 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 public realm, and the American Business Brokerage has been around since two thousand eleven. So that's going on a decade now. And we've okay. been on the Inc. five hundred list three times. It's one of the fastest growing companies in America number of other awards, uh, 40 under 40 in the state of Utah is an award that I won a few years back. So awesome. So for the, you said you mentioned, uh, that you, I guess started or you sold six companies that were your own. Well, yeah. what were those companies? What, what, what type of businesses? Yeah. So let's see the, the one we took public after that, um, we did an educational services company, uh, where we hired professors that had retired. Okay. And, uh, we built uh, software to where, uh, kids could could go online. They could take like a personality test of what they wanted to study in college, mm -hmm. and it would tell them the colleges that were the best fit. So, like, let's say you wanted to be a lawyer or whatever, it would like outline you know these okay. are the best undergrads. But then also, I would it would show you where you could get free money, and then the professors were like a coach. So they were coaching the kids on how to apply and how to. Um, how to uh, do the interviews, like when they would go to go okay. to school to interview. Interesting. Yeah. So it was kind of like a coaching program for kids. 
we'd sell it to eighth graders all the way up through high school, helping them get free money through the system. And, uh, and then we kind of bolted on an ACT, SAT test prep. So, okay. Yeah. What about the other ones? That was one of them. Uh, we did an ones? online business. Um, we, bought a, we bought a furniture business from two kids uh, that were going to MIT. They got way over leveraged. <laughs> they were selling modern furniture online. And uh, they used to just do drop shipping. And then they decided to try to bring in all the products. Okay. Yeah. And um, they like, I think their mom co-signed on a big loan for them. And they couldn't keep up. Like they just, yeah, yeah. anyway, so the mom was going to lose the house unless they sold this thing. So we came in, it was in shambles. It really didn't have good financials, but the online traffic for their website was like insane. These kids were super, super smart. All of the backlinks and the SEO traffic that they were getting on the website okay. was like through the roof, right? So I knew there was value there. So we bought it and my wife actually ran it from home. We kind of stabilized it, right? Put okay. together good books, went back to the drop shipping model. Okay. And ended up selling it for like four times what we bought it for, plus the money that we made. So it was like a 5x return in 18 months. Okay. It was yeah. awesome. It was a nice little deal there. Um, I've also done some stuff in uh, the Amcos. That's why I brought it up. Okay. Yeah, in the Amco transmissions. Um, that was down in Phoenix. Um, a guy died of stomach cancer. And uh, you bought the shop? We bought 12 of them. Okay. Yeah. Um, a guy died, stomach cancer, left them to his wife. She didn't run them. She didn't know what to do with them. So we kind of got a good deal. We bought them for a million bucks. Those franchises, like just starting, meaning starting from scratch, are like 250 a piece. Yeah, sure. So yeah. we picked them up, you know, basically for half price and they were already running. Same thing. Stabilized those. Got rid of some bad apples that were uh, kind of stealing money from the company, in my opinion, and then sold them off in pieces. Four, okay. four, and four. Um, that took about two and a half years to do that. So that kind of deal. What do you operationally do? You, do you have a team that you send down there? Like who's who's like in the ground in Phoenix in that example running so that in business? The beginning, I was doing that stuff by myself because it was my money, right? It's okay. when, when I was when you're risking your own money. It's like I just did not want to trust anybody else. Sure to go watch my money. So I was doing it. Did you move down there or just run it from Utah? Uh, I ran it from here, but I was down there quite a bit. And I knew that there was going to be a, uh, like, I didn't know if I was going to resell the whole thing um, or whether I was going to um, piece them off. And as soon as I got in there and I could figure out that their the general manager that these guys had was just not good. I mean, he was one of these guys, I, mean, I hate to like stereotype him, but like short, Five four, really tan, like overly tan, big okay. gold chain, just like yeah, yeah. kind of a questionable character. Yeah, it didn't take longer than about six months to know that you know he had his yeah. own side deals going on, and um, yeah, yeah. I just had to figure out a way to get him out without the business kind of. Okay, so as soon as we did that, we exited it. But. Okay, so I guess for for. A business owner who's listening, looking, maybe looking to sell or eventually, or or maybe they're putting the plan together, right? Where kind of like you said, they want to find a business like that, maybe that online business where they can buy it, they can fix it, and they can sell it, and then they can kind of move on to the next one, a, a, more of a, a flip model. What's like what's like an ideal business to, to buy? Like what's like a profile that maybe that you run through and everyone's different based on their risk and their experience, but like maybe for you, what what boxes like does it need to check for you for, to get your interest? So let me, there's a broad question because like there's really no such thing as an ideal business, but your follow-up question is better. Meaning 
the way I categorize a business is, or especially early on, like we're talking about the MCOs, anything that I feel like if worse comes to worse, I can get out of this, break even, or I could run this myself and save it. Does that make sense? Like I okay. have the skills and the tools to protect my own investment. So if you're, you know, really good at fixing cars or something like that, like a mechanic, and you've got some money and you want to buy a mechanic shop, worst comes to worst, you can always get in there, you know, and do what you do best because you understand that side of the business, right? Okay. Um, for me, sales, as long as there's a heavy sales component aspect to it, I know that I can get in there, worst case scenario, drop everything, go down there, move there, whatever it takes, resurrect this thing, and then figure out a way to get out of it. Okay. Um, that's that's how I buy. I don't like to buy too much out of my comfort zone because then I'm one, not really a value. And then two, if worse comes to worse and things are starting to unravel, it's hard to fix, right? Like all of a sudden you're seeking advice from experts. Well, what if they can't fix it? Like you don't know whether they're giving you expert advice or mm-hmm. not. So okay. that, that's one component. And I'd say the second one, um, I think I lost my train of thought on this one, but anyways, that, all good, that's, all that's good. the big one. Okay. Uh, all right. So from the, the broker standpoint, so someone's coming to you and they want to sell their business, right? They want to get it to market. I guess what, so let's walk through that process. What, is, what does that process look like? You get the call from the guy who says, you know, maybe he's near retirement. He doesn't have a succession plan uh, and he wants to, he wants out. What does it, what does it look like? Yeah. So the first, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do a call. We're going to establish the client's goals, Right. Because the client's goals are different than my goals. And what I mean by that is some clients are looking to retire. Some clients are looking to transition into another business. They're mm-hmm. like, hey, I hate doing this. I want to do this. And it's like, okay, I need to understand their motivation as to why they're doing it. One, every buyer is going to ask them, why are you selling? Why are you selling a good business? Yep. So I encourage them, one, tell me the truth as to why you're really selling. And two, We'll formulate a good answer, but an honest answer. We never want to misrepresent, but sure. let's formulate how we tell that story so we don't you know, freak anyone out, so to speak. So we establish the client's goals. And the second thing is um, we start by doing an appraisal. Like uh, For your you know, listeners or anybody else, I'm happy to do a free appraisal. So anytime I get referrals like from a client or let's say you gave me a referral, I would do a free business appraisal. It's, it's twofold. The reason being is it's very important that the client understand what his business is worth, regardless of whether he wants to sell today. Mm-hmm. You need to know the value, right? Sure. Yeah. One, does it hit the target? Meaning, can you exit today and be happy, or are you off? And if you're off, then we can talk about how to get there, right? We okay. can talk about you know some of the things you can do to improve value of your business and maybe when a good time to sell it. But I need to know that we're on the same page. Second part as to what's realistic, right? Because if you tell me you want $100 million and I'm like, hey, look, your business is only worth seven, I'm not taking the deal because it'll be a giant waste of time and effort for me. We're just too far apart. So that's why I do it right out of the gate um, is just to establish. And then from that point, if if that's the case, then we kind of get into the nuances of how the deal's going to work. But those are the first two things that I like to do right out of the gate. Okay. What are some ways? I mean, all the businesses we bought, well, for the most part, are, are multiples of of cash flow to the owner. You know, it could be two times, three times, four times. At least the ones we're doing because they're kind of like one off deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I understand too, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. But then, as you know, 
the more money the business makes in general, the, the higher the multiple it can get. Is that, is that spot on? So at least you're savvy, right? At least you know something. <laughs> I've been on some of these podcasts where people will be like, well, isn't it just a multiple of revenue? And I'm like, no, anyone that tells you that doesn't know no. what they're talking about because your business is totally different than like a tech company, right? Yep. Who a might tech be? company with patents and IPs and all this other stuff. Like, so um, in your space, absolutely. Multiple of cash flow. And then you're going to have an asset component, right? You're going to have lifts and yep, lifts, inventories, all that, all that stuff. You're going to get a wholesale value on those. You know, you're not paying retail and you're definitely not paying cost. You've got to take a, you know, what would happen if I threw these on the auction block? That's a number. And then you've got your multiple of revenue. Your, your business space, you probably, you've already done it several times, but pretty simple, right? Package that up and just yep. price. Um, but you are correct in the sense that when you see cash flow go up, there are certain multiples that will increase. So the half a million dollar mark in net cash flow, there's usually a little uptick there. Okay. Uh, seven figures, you start seeing something that goes over a million bucks. Okay. You're going to see another uptick. The big one is two million and above. Okay. Do you know why? Why is that? Well, here's why. I'll tell you. <laughs> Most private equity firms won't even like look at a deal until yeah. it's a minimum of two million in EBITDA or owner cash flow. Like they just don't even dip into the lower stuff, the Main Street stuff. You've yep. got to be above two, but when you're above two, they're willing to pay higher multiples than the lower. So even if you were at a million, you might get four, four and a half X. As soon as you jump to two, it could be six and above. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so for somebody who's looking to, like even for us, you know, our, our models, we're trying to buy up, you know, single stores, right? You roll them up, you know, we can buy them at three. And then one day when we're ready to sell, then we can sell them at six or seven or, you know, whatever. Uh, even if Even if we don't increase the profit, right? Just by bringing a bunch of small ones together into a bigger package with right then it's it's structure I, I, and at least for the things i read and you can you may, maybe speak to this is kind of the the more replaceable the owner is the, the more valuable right so like you have an office you have a general manager like the, the i could go live in florida and you know the business will continue to run it's, it's probably a more attractive business right to a private equity company or someone maybe who's wanting to buy it than if the owner is like the bookkeeper and the general manager and does all these tasks then has to get replaced no, you're like one of the smarter guys I've talked to. Them. <laughs> a lot of guys don't know that. Like yeah. truthfully, they literally don't know that. They don't know that um, having a business that will operate without you is one of the main factors that people really want to buy. You know what I mean? So I mean, your model, your space right now is actually really, um, it's kind of a hotbed. There's a lot of big private equity companies out there trying to buy up. They won't buy one shop. They'll buy like seven to 10 or more. Um, and they're pooling like hundreds of these single shop mechanics into a package and then they're flipping it for huge multiples. So, yep. Yep. So, um, you probably already know about it. Yeah. I'm, um, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And, you know, one day that's our goal, right? Is, is that's one day. It's just a matter of, you know, the bigger we can make it in the meantime, the, the, the more valuable it'll be. And, uh, all right. Cool. So, what, um, one of the things I, I saw on, on your, your your sheet here was, let's talk about the difference between an asset sale and a, and a stock sale. And so sure. for listeners who, who don't know, what what is an asset sale versus what is stock? What are the kind of the... Let's start with that first and we can go into the pros and cons. Got it. So an asset sale is when somebody comes in and says, uh, I want to buy your company, but I want to buy all the assets. I don't want to buy your corporation. So I'm just going to call it Brian LLC. Okay. Sure. Yep. 
That's your LLC. That's your, your limited liability corporation. They want to buy your shop. They want to buy your revenue. They want to buy your customer list, your, your email list, all that stuff, plus your base, everything that you have. Yep. They don't want to take over the EIN number or the LLC. So my company, Josh LLC, is going to buy all the assets of Brian LLC Mm-hmm. And the assets are going to transfer over to me and now they're going to be under me. Does that make yep. sense? I'm, I'm not going to change anything about your business, but I'm not going to take over your corporation, the EIN number, the stock, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's an asset. So Okay. And then for, for those who don't know, what's, what's a stock sale in? So a stock sale is Brian LLC is the company. I'm going to buy everything, including the LLC. And me, my person, Josh Lindsay, is now going to become the new owner operator of Brian LLC. So even though it'll still say Brian LLC, the managing partner, the CEO, you know, the person who's liable for that entity yep. is going to change from Brian to Josh at closing. Okay. And so why would someone want to do an asset sale versus a stock sale? When when is each one appropriate or, or not appropriate? Yeah, look, great question. So the majority of the sales that I do are asset sales. And the reason being is it's a cleaner cut of liability. That makes sense. Meaning the day we close, when the assets change, everything going forward is going to be my responsibility, meaning like any debt, any taxes, any liabilities. As soon as I own it going forward, once it's under my new LLC, it's very clear cut as to when that, when those assets mm-hmm. change hands. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. And it's cool. like an old, if like an old tax lien came up, I'd be like, well, look, the assets we're not under my control during that time. They're Brian's responsibility. Yep. So most of the time I do asset sales just purely because it's a cleaner cut of liability. Yeah. So all the, all the acquisitions we do, they're all asset sales. And we, we've had some come up where there, there'd be an insurance claim. Actually, we had one. It was a couple of days after we, we bought the stores and there was an insurance claim from, from previous work that was done before we owned them. And at that point, we said, listen, you know, we bought the assets. When you buy the assets, you don't buy the, the liabilities. So... You know that that claim had to go to you know the guy who sold it and his insurance and and you know we wash our hands of it, but if we did a stock sale, we bought his entity, then we'd be we're we're buying his liabilities too, and buying the those insurance issues and tax issues and like it's a lot riskier at least from my experience and what I've learned to to do in a stock sale. So I guess why would someone do a stock sale? Is it any any good reasons that? So let me, yeah, we'll touch on it. So two things. One, you can still have a severance of liability in a stock sale. So even the stock sales that we do, do, there's usually a clause in the purchase agreement where there's still a severance of liability. Okay. So it stands. Brian, you're responsible for all your old stuff. If this insurance claim pops up, you got to okay. take care of it. Um, oftentimes, and the reason I'm elaborating is because you brought up a good example. Oftentimes when it is a stock sale and there is a severance of liabilities, it will typically put a portion of the deal uh, in escrow or on hold for a period of time specifically for that reason. Okay. So they'll say, okay, your industry insurance claims usually have a term of this amount. So we're going to put 200 grand in an account, a lawyer's account or whatever over here for two years. And every six months, we're going to release 50 grand, right? Okay. So no claims. Here's the other 50 Another six months, here's the other 50. So you get the money, but it's going to come as time ticks off just to make sure that if anything were to arise and you didn't take care of it, 
we okay. have money over here to like settle that claim or whatever. So severance of liabilities typically okay, still so you can fix stuff. you can fix you can still, most yeah, of you that. Can still okay. take care of that. So here, here's why I see stock sales. If there is intrinsic value in that company, meaning the EIN number, Brian LLC has relationships, credit accounts, they've built up some type of tenure with, with some entity that if I do an asset sale, all of that resets mm, okay. to zero. Does that make sense? Could be contracts if they have a, a government contracts. contract or a big corporate contract. Okay. So let me give you an example. Um, I, I sell a lot of stuff in logistics, trucking. Okay. Some of those contracts are the longer you have the contract, you get points along the way for good deliveries and good service. Does that make sense? Okay, sure. So if you've had that contract for 20 years, you're going to have a tremendous amount of points built up. You're going to have a lot of preference with uh, carriers, et cetera. Okay. If I do an asset sale on that deal, my sure. score starts over at zero. Okay. I now go to the back of the line when it comes to preference. So you would want to take over the entity to keep all those points because they're getting mm. preferential rates, preferential treatment inside of that company. And, and if you're buying something in a multiple, obviously you don't want to disrupt the flow of income. And if part of the income is based on how respected that company is, you wouldn't want to just start over at zero. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. What, what about uh, tax strategies for someone selling their business? What are some things they can do or ways they can structure it to minimize their tax yeah, liability? So I typically defer to a, a, a tax lawyer on this. Okay. I'll keep, just only because I'm not an attorney, right? So yeah, sure. I'm not supposed to be giving tax advice. Yeah, yeah. Just Josh's but, opinion oh, here. So. Yes, Josh's opinion. Exactly. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, when you sell a business, I think part of the, part of the, um, process is what am I going to do with this money when I sell it? And a lot of people just think, oh, I'm just going to like bank it or whatever, but you get taxed pretty hard when you're, when you're above, you know, half a million dollars, it's going to be like 38%, right? Sure. Yeah. Only write off 500 grand in goodwill, um, which is capital gains, which is like 15%. Mm-hmm. Everything above that is going to be taxed on personal income. So you've got to have uh, a plan in place. So um, I'll give you the I'll give you an example. I'll give you the Clinton plan. Okay, you're familiar with the Clintons. No, no. I, I know who the Clintons are, but yeah, you know they are. Okay, so they are extremely wealthy because they run charitable organizations, right? And so okay. they'll go out and do a book tour and speak and make all this money, like thirty million dollars. At $30 million, you're going to give nearly half of that away, right? You're going to mm-hmm. put 15 grand back in taxes that you just paid it. Well, what they'll do is they'll take the $30 million during the year. They'll donate $29 million to a charitable organization. And as you know, when you donate to charity, what is it? Deductible. 100%. Yep. So that $29 million shifts over here into a, a charity that they control or they own. And then they just siphon money when they need it. So, for example, they'll pay them. They'll pay themselves a salary of okay. you know, grand from the charity because you're allowed to pay people salaries. Those charities can go out and invest money. They can put money in the stock market. They can buy real estate with that money. They can do all sorts of stuff. And that money has really just been tax deferred. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. That's how a lot of the really ultra wealthy. I'm not ultra wealthy like Bill Clinton, but I'm fairly familiar with how okay. they move. Um, when they get large sums of money like that, they 
those yes. charities and some strategies. Yeah, because okay. they can always tap it. Does that make sense? Like if they needed a couple million dollars, them being you know on the charitable organization, they could pay themselves that. Interesting. Okay. The other one I know is is it depends on how it's if it's structured, but if it's a seller finance deal. You know, yeah. a seller then is it's an installment loan. And I mean it's the same amount of taxes they have to pay. It's just spread out over a number of years. And then they get interest uh, well, if, actually, if it's structured that way. To to, to 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 hit on that, if they're doing a seller finance loan, they're gonna pay less taxes over time because for example, if they get paid a million dollars, okay, mm-hmm. in one lump sum, you know, you're gonna be taxed at the highest tax rate. You can be taxed as high as thirty forty eight percent. If you're getting paid a million dollars over 10 years, well, that's a hundred grand a year. You're still allowed to have your typical write-offs like on stuff. They're probably only going to get taxed on like 60 grand, 50 grand, which you're going to be paying like 20%. So they're probably going to pay half the tax just on a seller note than they would if they took the full lump sum. But you asked, you know, how do you pay as little tax as possible? I just gave you more. Yeah, that's that's, that's perfect. Yeah, charity and seller finance it. So what's the best time to sell as someone's business? Ironically, when your business is doing great. One of the toughest things that I deal with is people will call me and say, Hey, my business isn't doing so well. Do you think you can sell it for me? They want to get out because things aren't going well. Yeah. And I having that conversation, it's like, hey, look, nobody wants to buy your problems. Like if you're failing and you're going under, um, why would somebody want to come in and pay you a premium? Um, they might pay like a discounted amount, right? Yeah. Yeah. Respect it, but you're not going to get some premium for it. It's, those are always tough conversations. So when your business is doing great and it's doing well and your market's strong, it's usually the best time to sell it because you can command top dollar. Yep. And that's a question, like you said, what are you going to do next? I mean, if you can sell it for three years, three times, right? So business makes whatever, hundred grand, you can sell for 300,000. But I mean, that's only, that's three years of income basically. So in that time, you, you have to find something else then to replace and, and kind of go on to your next journey. Yeah, sometimes people are just looking for something that's more passive, right? So Mm -hmm. like your reference of 300 grand, it's probably an owner-operated business, right? It's fairly small. It's only making 100 grand a year. That guy's busy. Let's say he's in the shop doing a whole bunch of stuff. Well, if he takes that 300 grand and he goes and buys like a uh, uh, apartment building with it, okay, you know, maybe he can work from home. He's still making eight or 9,000 bucks a month. But he's like not in the shop, so to speak. It's like more of a free flow. He can go live in Florida and run his apartment building. It's just different. Yes, there's a lifestyle change yeah. is really lifestyle what they're looking change. for. Okay. Yeah. Good. So what's what's next for you? Is it is it building the broker business? Is it private equity? Is it a portfolio? Like what are your what are your plans? Uh, yeah, I've got a decent portfolio. Um, so we have four companies. I we've got I've got the private equity group where we do active investing, where we're you know, acquisitions and exits. The brokerage stuff keeps me fairly busy. I sell about 15 to 20 businesses a year, which is like one to two a month. So I'm pretty okay. active. Um, I've got a real estate arm. Um, I've got a bunch of Airbnbs, actually. Okay. I love them. They do really well. And uh, that's they? fairly new. So we have one in St. George. I don't know if you know where that's at. Is it all Utah? Southern Utah. Okay. Um, yeah, like, like snow, like mountain skiing destinations. One, one's in the south, so it's warm. It's near Zion's National Park. Okay, yeah, um, which is super popular tourist destination. Um, so it gets a lot of traffic from that. There's a lake nearby. It's so, anyways, warm, and it's kind of Utah. Like a lot of people run away for the weekend down there. Like okay. it's only four hour drive. So 
One there. Um, we're doing one up in the mountains. Uh, it's like a lake home. Uh, it's a modern. It'll be done here in the next two months. We're building that. And then I have another one that is a, like a ski and ski out in Park City that'll be done in 2023. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you have three, three or four of those? We've got three of those. Hawaii's on the horizon. Um, but I like to like stage them, you know, one stage at a time. I don't want to be working on like five of these deals. Yeah, and, and some of them you're, you're building, so you're buying plots of land, knocking down an old house or... Yes. Uh, so the one up in, uh, it's in Bear Lake. Uh, yeah, it's vacant land building. It takes like eight or nine months to get done. It'll be about a two, $2 million property when it's done. So. Okay, cool. And uh, what's the fourth thing? Uh, my wife has a business. So she does interior design and she actually has a hair extension company. That's more on the minor side. Her interior design business has kind of picked up in yeah. the last year. So she's really more full-time in that. But those are our four streams of revenue. Um, they kind of, you know, investments, uh, as far as equity goes, those are long plays, right? You're in and out of deals and they're lump sums of cash. The brokerage stuff, I'm selling deals, uh, you know, every month. Um, the real estate arm is the passive income mm-hmm. yep. built and then we're you know rentals and you've got lots of money coming in just passively and then my wife has her own career i'm a big advocate uh we're kind of off topic but i'm a big advocate that like women can do amazing things and as a, as a husband you, you should like nudge them in that direction like hey what do you want to pursue you know what angles do you want to pursue to help you grow and we should be there to support them. They're not just designed to be like pregnant in the kitchen, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and then when the reason I share that is because I also believe that it's a big aspect as to why our relationship is so good. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like we have yeah, our own each other and work on. Yeah, and we support each other in our businesses and we kind of come back and we're both contributing to the overall like long-term plan. Does that make sense? Yeah. One's yeah. not carrying more than the other. And um, so, yeah, yeah, it's great for her to like have her own career, her own clients, her own identity of growth, so to speak. And yeah, it means a lot to me. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Any books you've been reading recently or that have had a big impact over you know your career and, and business? Uh, yeah, so I do read a lot. Um, a lot of self-improvement. Um, it's a great question because... I've read a lot of good books, but I, I love, I'm sure you probably read him. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Yaka Willink this morning. He's mm. a Utah guy now, um, but Extreme Ownership. Have you read that? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet, but yeah, it's oh, on my list. You got to read it. It's like, that's a, t- that's a great one. Primarily because you wouldn't expect it to be super good, but the reason it's good is every chapter he shares like a Navy SEAL story, like there's a mission. Okay. So it's cool. Like it grabs you. You're like, whoa, this is kind of intense. But then the leadership um, aspects that he mixes into it by using the examples are real. Like they're, okay. yeah, they're good. So it's a good one. Um, have you read Living with a Seal? Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't. I haven't. Come on, man. <laughs> okay. All right. Odd is my list here. Living this with a Seal. Gog- you haven't read Goggins' book? No, I've heard of it. I mean... Uh, everyone's like, heard of it, but yeah. It's like an all-timer. Man. All right, I'll, like I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it when we're done it's here. It's hilarious. So. And you've heard nothing like it. Plus, Jesse Itzler's in it. And you probably know who he is. And... Nah, I don't know who he is. Uh, right. <laughs> right. We got to get you on the all train. All right, all right. We're going to get yeah, you on yeah. the train. It's, it's totally worth it. Jesse Itzler, okay. 
you got to look him up. Um, phenomenal leader in the business space. He started Marquee Jet, sold it to Warren Buffett. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Um, he also used to be a rapper. Like his story is incredible. And now okay. he's married to Sarah Blakely. Um, okay. Well, right. Thanks. The guy is just an all time baller, but I, I love his energy. Like you should just check him out. I, I love his energy. He's awesome. Just, Cool. So where can listeners connect and um, they're interested in having questions, the free consultation, any of that stuff? Yeah, I'd love to talk to any of your listeners that are interested in um, having their business reviewed or valued. Like I said, happy to do it for free for them. We'll just chalk it up as a referral from you. So if they mention your podcast, um, my my business line is 866-224-8386 or they can go to AmericanBizBrokers.com. So American B-I-Z, brokers with an S. Com. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll link those up. What What about like any buyers who are interested? Is there a way they can kind of be on your list if something comes across your desk? Like, how, how do you find your buyers? I guess, and is there yeah, is that so also got, an avenue? You've got a, the best way to do that is I, I already have a pre qualified buyer list of a little over five thousand people. What What a pre qualified buyer is for us is they've signed our non disclosure. It's got non disclosed non circumvent, meaning they're not going to reach out to the sellers and they're also not going to reach out to like the employees or vendors yeah, yeah, yeah. or any of that stuff. Sure. Not supposed to do that. So you got to sign that, but then you also got to provide proof of funds. Okay. There's a lot of people out there that get uncomfortable about providing proof of funds. I don't understand why. If you want to see the financials of a business, their tax returns and all these things, I mean, you got to show us yeah, your financials yeah. as well. If you've only got $10,000, I'm not sending you a $10 million deal. Like, don't tell yeah. me you've got investors lined up. Like, I'm just not for it. So if they do that, uh, then they get on our pre-qualified list. Before deals actually go public, I ping that list with every deal and I give them a week head start. So if they okay. get a week, review the business, review the details, et cetera. If we don't get it under contract or an offer, then it goes live to the public throughout all of our marketing channels, et cetera. Okay. And is it all, all, all over the country, the, the businesses national, that you buy and sell? Yeah. Or? yeah. Okay. National brokers. Yep. All right. Great. Well, thanks for, for sharing, you know, all your, your time and your energy today. And uh, I think, you know, you provide a ton of great value. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode of Business with Beers. My goal with every episode is to help inspire you to reach new levels of success in your own business and life. So start taking action today. And in order to help this podcast reach more people, please rate, review, and share. To connect with me on Instagram and Twitter, check out the links in the show notes. And until next time, have a great day.